You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. I'm JR. And I'm David. And it's just the two of us today, and we're doing something a little bit different for two reasons. There's two reasons why I wanted to do this, really. And one is because I wanted to try and just do something a little bit different with the Blue Box podcast every now and again, just to keep it fresh and to uh, give the listeners something a bit different from time to time. And a new voice is always a good voice, right? I hope so. <laughs> and the uh, the other reason is, last year, after Series 7B, we had the sort of feedback episode where we read out a load of emails, and I thought that came out a little bit dry and didn't really work. So this year, I kind of wanted to do, like, uh, have people on talking about the episodes instead perhaps just do something slightly different just to keep it fresh but david there's a reason why i wanted to get you on here in particular okay. and that is because of your book right would you like you tell people about your book I'll, I'll be really brief because that's not why they're here but it's um it's a novel called the company of the dead it's a science fiction novel and it's heavily based around Time, tra time travel, basically. It's set in an alternate world where the Titanic sinks under different circumstances and basically there is a time traveller who happens to be a doctor who tries to sort things out. And um, It's a big book. But how's it gone down? Um, well, it came out in Australia about five years ago and then it was released last year overseas in the US and UK. And mm -hmm. uh, Critically, it's done really well. Um, I'm quite happy. It, it won Best Australian Science Fiction Novel and Best Speculative Fiction Novel and was nominated for a few other awards. And um, I can't quit my day job, but uh, I'm pretty happy with it. <laughs> I've, I've not actually read it, although I do have a copy, and I've dipped into it, and I have to say it's beautifully written. And the idea absolutely fascinating as well. And, you know, when I get the time, I will sit down and read it because it looks like an absolutely brilliant book. And the reviews have all been massively positive as well, have they not? Yeah, they have. And look, I mean, I was really happy with it. It took me about 10 years of my life. And if you'd told me at the start, that's how long it would have taken. I probably would have still done it. But it was, um, it was a lot of work. But yeah, I'm pretty happy with it. Good. Excellent. Now, but obviously, well, you're a Doctor Who fan. <clears throat> yeah. Big time. When... Yes, but since you were a kid, yeah, I started watching it probably when I was in. I was born in '66. Uh, I started watching it probably when I was in fifth grade, and got to meet Tom Baker when I was um, about twelve, and was very dismayed when he told me I was too old to watch Doctor Who, and <laughs> I ignored him. But yeah, I've been a fan for a long time. What was the? Do you remember what the first story you ever saw was then? I think the first story I ever saw was the um, Monster of Peladon. 
Oh wow! When it's green. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I was blown and away. When you were a kid, then we because this is obviously in Australia, right? Yeah. Were they showing it um, weekly, like we have over here, episodically? They would show it four nights a week, and so if there's four nights a week, yeah, so and if there was a six-parter, you'd have it broken up. And I remember getting in a lot of trouble because we had a school camp that I had to go to, and I insisted that my mother pick me up in time to watch the last episode of Genesis of the Daleks, <laughs> and I got in so much trouble with the school, but I got to see the last episode, so I was pretty happy. Well, of course, you wouldn't want to miss the last episode of Genesis of the Daleks. Blimey! Not when you're 12. No, absolutely not. I wouldn't want to miss the last episode of Genesis of the Daleks now. No. Can you imagine? It could have been um, <laughs> yeah. But, well, the reason we're here really is to talk about Series 7, Part B, really. Yeah. But, but before we go into 7, Part B, what did you think of the episodes last year? I um I really enjoyed the first part of the season. I was, it, it all seemed a bit too short and too quick, but I thought it was very strong. Very strong start to this sort of extended mm. season. And um, yeah, I really loved it. Particular favourites or... I have to say, I really liked Asylum of the Daleks. I just thought, I really liked, I mean, it was a strange, in a way, it was a strange take, and I, and I wanted to see more of the classic Daleks, and I, I, I thought yeah, the nanotechnology threw me a little bit, but I thought it was a very strong start, so I really loved that. I loved Dinosaurs in a Spaceship. That seemed to be, like, the ultimate Who episode for me in terms of this amazing ensemble cast and wild story and a wild ride, and... um Angels Take Manhattan, it was sort of more important than, um, it was strong, but it was more of a story that had to happen, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I think sometimes a writer will kind of write themselves into a corner a bit, won't they? He knew, <clears throat> I mean, Russell T. Davis had this problem. In the old series, companions would just leave, almost without explanation. But in the new series, you really have to explain why they're going and why they can't come back, mm. because you've turned you've turned the TARDIS into this place where once you've seen it, once you've experienced it, once you've done the time travelling, why would you ever want to stop? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, <clears throat> I beg your pardon, it's uh, it's a difficult thing because you have this. I guess now with these two different. Um, showrunners, you get this sort of real concept of blocks and you get this real concept that certain characters will not come back because the new writer mm. won't want to bring them back. And I, I guess it's a bad, it's an unfortunate thing to have to take that into consideration, but you kind of knew that um, he brought those characters in, he was going to take them out in such a way that they would never return. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, given, I think Stephen Moffat's problem is, given all the timey-wimey stuff he writes all the time anyway, uh, which I really enjoy, but given that he does that, it's really difficult to actually come up with a story where you have a final end for a character. Other than killing them off, there's not really any explanation that's good enough to explain why they can't come back. So in the end, I guess um, The Angels Take Manhattan was kind of a bit of a half measure, really. Well, it's difficult because you can't even kill characters off because he was even mentioning in one episode that he goes and goes bowling with Virginia Woolf. So, yeah, so yeah. no one's ever really dead, <clears throat> theoretically, to um, to a Time Lord. And the way he explained no. the block, I just thought 
this is what he says. This is the reason why we can't go back, and I'm not going to analyse it. So that was the approach I took. Yeah. I think the brilliant thing he did was show the graves. So that even though Amy and Rory are living on in, you know, 1930s Manhattan or whatever it was, by showing the grave, you know, the explanation is <clears throat> ancillary, really. The grave, showing the grave, is kind of putting a full stop on their storyline. Yeah, it's a very definitive message. And then he does that again with Clara, which is, which is kind of interesting. He like he seems to like using that as a marker for saying... No yeah. As saying this yeah. character in this format can't come back, and it's, I mean it's a, clear, it's a it's a very good message, and it's it's just something that we accept subconsciously or consciously and think, well, look, we've seen a great yeah, yeah. they're dead. Absolutely, yeah. What did you think of the Christmas special then? I mean, the whole sort of Clara. Thing, I know Clara was in Asylum of the Daleks, but really, her story kind of kicks off in the Christmas special. I. What did you? Yeah, go on. Yeah. I'm always, I always take the Christmas specials with a grain of salt, and um, what I look, I like them because that's how I started watching this as a family show. Because I've got a ten-year-old mm. and an eight-year-old, and they first watched Doctor Who with us two years ago with the Christmas special, so that has a bit of a soft spot with me. But I was a bit, oh uh, yeah, I was a bit surprised that he made it so. Um, they usually make them fairly standalone, and it seems that this is very integral to the whole storyline. And that was a bit surprising yeah. because I, I thought basically that. Maybe I'm wrong, but I thought the Christmas special is where they try and gather more fans in and try and make it more wider in its appeal. And this seems very much part of the, like in um in the X Files. If I can just, do you ever watch? Did you ever watch X Files? That's all right. I've seen the first two or three series yeah, that, that, years and years ago. But so they would have these standalone stories and they'd have these core stories. And with the core stories, you had to watch them to know what was going on. And a standalone was just fun. You didn't have to know and. With the Doctor Who episodes, the Christmas specials prior to the Snowmen seem to be standalone, watch, have fun, turn it off. But Snowmen seems yep. very important to what he's trying to say, so I was a bit surprised about that. But I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. It was a very odd decision. In fact, this week, as we record this, I don't know if you know about the whole fuss about Series 7 Part 2 escaping early in America. Have you heard this? No, what do you mean? Oh well, this is uh, this is all going down as we speak, and by the time this podcast goes out, it'll probably all be old hat. But anyway, um, the 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 second half of the series was due to come out on DVD and Blu-ray, sort of immediately after the name of the Doctor goes out, the Monday after. Right. But in America, they've sent the Blu-rays out early, so some people in America have already received their Blu-rays and have already seen next week's episode wow. of Doctor Who. Wow. <clears throat> okay, I wish but the other is <laughs> kind of that. mad, isn't it? Yeah. We'd all have ordered them from America if we'd known. Absolutely. But the funny thing about it is, in America, they have uh, released the Snowmen separately from the box set, whereas in Britain, the Snowmen is part of the Series Seven Part Two box set. They, they had a separate here too, unfortunately. <clears throat> and same. Oh, really? Same with the year earlier. The same with the Christmas one from the year before. Yeah. Which is a bit annoying. Well, that. Uh, well, those, those standalone Christmas episodes, you can understand them releasing those separately. <clears throat> because, like I guess you were saying, if there are people who only watch Doctor Who at Christmas, they might only want to buy the Doctor Who Christmas special rather than the whole series, I suppose. But with the Snowmen being such an integral part of the Clara storyline, it makes sense to me to include it as part of the box set this year. 
I can't help thinking it's a marketing thing because I think that really only fans are going to be buying Doctor Who if it's a standalone episode. Yeah. I, I suspect people are just going to go out and buy that. So I, I can't help thinking it's a marketing thing because for the previous box sets that were Blu-ray, it was all in one series and that was much better. Mm. So. Well, there will, I think, in a few months' time, I think there will be a box set of both halves of Series 7 with the two Christmas specials and a few more extras on as well. Yeah, I couldn't wait for that. <laughs> no, I know. But some of the um, online things they've done, the prequels and short scenes and things like that, will probably be on the complete box set. For, yeah. for example, the thing that Chris Chibnall did after... The Angels Take Manhattan went out. Oh gosh, I can't remember what it was called. The thing where Rory's dad gets the message, gets the letter from his grandson. Yeah, yeah it was. But it, of course it wasn't on the box set because they made it too late to go on the box set for the first half of Series 7. So I'm hoping things like that will be included on the complete set. I, I'm sure that and there'll be no shortage of material for them to find in that. I'm no. Sure. no. So that's what I'm holding out for. I, I, so I like the snowman. I could have done without the visuals of the little biting teeth in the snow, but you know, I think the kids yeah. liked it. But yeah, I thought it was quite. I thought it was good, and I thought it was setting the stage for an amazing, amazing season. And the thing was, I started hearing your podcast um, for this year a little bit. I was a bit delayed because I was caught up with work, so I was yeah. sort of hearing you guys talking out of sequence. So it was very interesting hearing you guys talking about where you thought the season was going to go in terms of um, this overarching three-year storyline about the Great yeah, Intentions. Yeah, yeah. And to hear you guys say it and then watch it. Sort of, it was because you listened to that just before you watched The Bells of St. John, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. And uh, you got, I'm, I, so I haven't heard any of your reviews for, the, for this season yet. I'm planning on catching up as soon as possible. But it was interesting how I was thinking you'd have a big smile on your face when you saw The Bells of St. John after they brought back the great intelligence and it was also glazing Richard E. Grant again. So. Oh yeah. <clears throat> well hopefully there'll be a lot more of him in the name of the Doctor. Mm. He's in the trailers obviously. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, uh, people are going to be listening to this podcast after that episode's gone out so I, I tell you what at the end let's talk about that and the anniversary special and maybe make a few predictions or a say a few things that we hope to see but let, let's go through the episodes then so far in series 7 and I will get your feedback Sure. <clears throat> well let's start instead of starting with Bells of St. John let's start with Nightmare in Silver because that is the most recent one that you've seen and you only saw that about 24 hours ago I think, yeah, is that right? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty fresh on that episode and I've been thinking about it a lot um and I, I still don't know what to make of it, but I really liked it, if that yeah. makes sense. I guess the, the, I, we all knew that they were going to do something new with the Cybermen, and I just didn't think he was going to do so many new things, and I was a bit overwhelmed by all the upgrades that were happening so rapidly. Yeah. In terms of, it was a good idea, and it was, and it, and I, it was, and it seemed very, a very contemporary idea in terms of the fact that these days upgrades and patches are becoming so ubiquitous and so available so rapidly. So it makes yeah. sense. Um, but it well, they kind of, uh, they kind of. When the Cybermen came back with Russell T Davis, 
that's kind of what they were saying with them. With, um, you know, smartphones probably were just sort of appearing by then, and the Cybermen were kind of based more on the smartphone thing than on the replacement human body part technology, weren't they? See, that seems out the window now. I mean, we see it sometimes, but as far as, if you were watching that show last night for the first time, it wouldn't even occur to you that there was any human parts. You, no, it wouldn't. And um, seeing the head detached, I know that we've seen the head detached in that in the Pandorica episode with the tentacles running across, skittering mm. across the floor. But to see a Cyberman taking off its helmet and putting it back on, and to see those, those Cybermites, if I was watching that de novo, it wouldn't even occur to me that there was any human origin to them. And no. while, while it's a strong concept in itself, it, it seems more like a computer virus now rather than um, a society that starts off and incorporates humans into, into, yeah. into robots. It's almost like they've lost... Because last night, <clears throat> the, fun, the, the a funny thing last night was that they said that the Cybermen were taking children and um, people from the funfair while it was still working as a funfair and using the body parts. But there was there was no real sense of that in the way they were depicted on screen. And there was no real explanation for how that could possibly be if the Cybermen were, like, taking their hands off and taking their heads off. What would they be using the body parts for? Yeah, I mean, that was the sense that I got. And, in fact, thinking about it now, I, would, I had more of <coughs> that happening on the Girl in the Fireplace mm. episode, where there'd be a human eye stuck in a camera, or there'd be a heart or yeah. something. I, I got much more of a sense of that with, um, with that story. And with this one, as a story, I enjoy the story. As part of the Cyberman canon, it's kind of, or mythos, it seems they've lost a horrifying concept. And, yeah, I mean... I would have liked some kind of connection. I mean, rather than just sticking a prosthesis on and saying that you're now part of Siberia, I would have preferred... I guess I would have preferred some continuity. Hmm. Any continuity. Do you know what? Do you know what? I think a really interesting... Because they've obviously redesigned the Cybermen, and I can't say I'm particularly impressed with it. Do you know what? They could have worked. The blank black eyes. If instead of the blank black eyes, they'd just put an eyeball in there. Can you imagine how spooky that would look? It would be pretty horrifying, actually. It would, yeah. I thought the faces were too... To tell you the truth, with the new Cyberman, the face seemed a bit too round or too soft. It seemed... Um, it looks a bit childish, to be honest. Less aggressive. It looks like a child's version of a Cyberman. Yeah. I um, I, I guess the thing is also, with Neil Gaiman, there was a level of expectation after The Doctor's Wife, and it's a bit unfair. Yeah. And if you told me that another author had written that episode, I would have thought, this is an amazing episode. But I think that with Neil Gaiman, and um, I don't know... Knowing what he's capable yeah, of. Yeah, I mean, he's done this with comics. I don't know if you've read many of his comics, but he would take another person's character and add a level of depth to it so that when you read the comic, he would just revitalize the whole series when he would go from series to series back then. So I guess when I was told it was a Cyberman story, I thought, we're going to finally get a real amazing Cyberman story. And I didn't walk away with that sense. But I did really enjoy yeah. it, so it's. I, I, I'm, I might be giving you a mixed message. I thought there was a lot of a lot of things to like about it. I think that the threat level of the Cybermen was really raised um, to a high level. The idea that you see a Cyberman you destroy the planet, I thought it was really cool. And um, I liked the scenes with the Doctor playing his playing the Cyber Planner. And uh, I've read online some fairly 
nasty criticisms of, of how he did it, but I thought it was a very rare opportunity to see a doctor being evil, sinister, and yet still as charming as ever. I, I thought it was very well, good. I thought he made a good job of it, Matt Smith, but I don't think it was a very a good idea to do it in the first place. He put too much on his shoulders. And also, the stuff inside the Doctor's head is just something I don't think we should have seen on screen, to be honest. Yeah, it, it, it kind of tends to open a can of worms, I suppose. And I guess the other thing yeah. is that we've seen this before in different films. and different, it's, not a new, it's not a new idea. Um, no. And I don't know how they could have done it differently. And I guess, again, it's raising the threat level. Like, he could never be um, assimilated before, so let's make him assimilatable so that we can make this scarier. Um, yeah, yeah, that's exactly it, yes. And it, it had its dramatic moments, but it was... Look, I, I feel very forgiving towards it because there, there wasn't that many new things in it, but the way it was put together was quite strong. And... Um, I, I did enjoy it, but I'm still thinking about it, if that makes sense. I'm still, um, my kids loved it. Oh, no, yeah. They thought it, so having the short, the other thing was having the children in the show was a bit strange because it seemed a little bit token. And I don't really. Well, they didn't really get a lot to do, did they? They just kind of were there, and then they were cybernized, and then they were saved. Yeah. And you, you could have told that story through the character of, I think his name was Webley, the guy they met when they arrived. You could have told the story of the threat through the cybernization, or whatever you want to call it, through his character. You didn't really need those children to be there at all. And uh, if you had children, they didn't need to have come on the TARDIS. They could have been local. So I don't know why there was the need to actually bring them aboard and then drop them off afterwards like an excursion. It seemed... It seemed a little bit odd, and I'm hoping there's a good reason for it for later on, um, because well, it didn't really... I just As you say, it, it wasn't necessary, and it just seemed a little bit... Just a bit... It was unusual. a very strange episode mm. with some very odd ideas, and I didn't like it very much, but I'm hoping that maybe it's one of those that improves over the passage of time. I think it's going to be polarizing fans, definitely, and I... I mean, the, mm. the thing is, like, on the acting, you know, the cast was great, visuals were great, um, but just something, it wasn't the Doctor's wife, I guess. No, it certainly wasn't. Mm. Anyway, um, so tell me, which story so far this year have you enjoyed the most? I think Bells of St. John was my favourite so far. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, am I alone? <laughs> I, um... Um, I think I, I liked it a lot, actually. I liked the sort of more quiet tone to it. It seemed a lot more... Um, there seemed a lot more freedom with it. Usually there's so much... Well, I say usually there's so much plot that you're kind of pretty helter-skelter-paced. I think Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who has dealt with the amount of plot you can get through in a 45-minute episode a lot better. But there was a real laid-back feel to The Bells of St. John that really appealed to me. Yeah, it didn't feel rushed, and um, I remember, again, because I, you were talking in anticipation of this series, having not seen it when you were talking about mm. it, and you were expressing concerns about the fact that one of the episodes was going to be an urban kind of story, and oh yeah, and it sounded like you had the impression this would be something happening, <coughs> I beg your pardon, contemporary, not particularly exciting. That was the feel that I got from you, and then going into the episode, 
and I thought it was a wild ride. And um, I loved the concepts of, of, you know, I loved his bike, and I and I loved the action portion of it. And I, I thought it was a very interesting way of telling the story about using the Wi-Fi. And also yeah. seeing Great Intelligence coming back so quickly was having heard, you know, having heard you say it might be part of the arc and thinking yes, maybe no. I thought it was very strong. Very strong. So I really, I thought it was a great start to the season. And um, I was really looking forward to the next episodes and got a little bit thrown. But um, yeah, I thought it was good. I, yes, I, and the, 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 the um, threat, the sort of monster, as it were, that he comes up with, the spoon heads, where their heads turn around and they're sort of hollow on the back. Kind of, because Stephen Moffat likes his conceptual monsters, really, doesn't he? And I suppose we have seen that before, but that was a really spooky moment. He seems to be really good at taking commonplace things and putting a twist on it. To um, yeah, and to do it in such a way that if you want to, interestingly enough, nearly all the scary stuff he does is stuff that you, if you want to scare your kids, you can do it really easily. If you just stand in front of your kid and slowly turn your head around, they're going to run out of the room <laughs> screaming before you finish the move. If they've watched the episode, and the same with the yeah. um, the Silence in the Library, he's very he's very good at taking the commonplace and finding um and finding it. Yeah, he is. And that's that's good. Horror. And giving it a really interesting twist, a really interesting conceptual twist as well. Mm. I think the trouble is he does it so much that people are kind of getting used to it, and they're probably saying uh, things like, "Why can't Stephen Moffat just write a proper Doctor Who monster?" But you know what, Doctor Who goes in phases, doesn't it? And Stephen Moffat will be gone sooner or later, and we won't be getting this kind of stuff anymore. And I'm just happy to enjoy this stuff while we've got it, to be frank. Yeah, I think it, I think it's a nice little movement within the show, and it, and I think also if it's popular enough, people will try their their hand at it. But um, maybe so, yeah. And I thought for for a reintroduction to Clara, it wasn't it wasn't bad in terms of um, our first meeting up with the contemporary version of Clara. Um, yeah. So I, it was nice the way she was introduced, kind of slowly rather than thrown straight in. Because they had quite a few fairly long scenes at the start of that episode for her to sort of establish herself hmm. before all the running around started. And a chance to see that she was quite different from... I mean, she was still flirtatious, but she wasn't She wasn't the girl in the Dalek and she wasn't the Victorian nanny. Yeah. So yeah, that was quite good. Well, I, what I do like about her is that... <clears throat> because there were complaints about Stephen Moffat writing Amy Pond and River Song who, of course, are mother and daughter, so they should be similar. Mm. But there were complaints that he wrote them them too similar. They're too fast-talking, too ready to answer back. And Clara actually feels more like a human being. You definitely know that she's his character, though, because there is that... Yeah, yeah. There is that sort of artiness about it. And there is that sort of... What's the word? It's almost like that screwball comedy kind of quips back and forth. There is a sense of that, yeah. I don't think he can I think No, I don't think he can. But I do think he has pulled back a bit with this character, and I do think he has made a conscious decision to try and write her slightly differently, hmm. even if he's not capable of writing her totally differently. I do, I do have troubles with her as a companion, and I can't... And I feel bad about this, and I can't put my finger on it, because I'm not looking for trouble with a companion. I'm not 
Yeah. <laughs> your pardon. I'm a fan who watches the show to enjoy the show, and I try not to nitpick too much. But having having enjoyed all the companions up until now, and where I haven't enjoyed them, having had a reasonable excuse, for example, Martha, I always found difficult to get attached to, but I felt bad for the actress in so much that she had to play this lovelorn character, which would tend to minimalize her. But having seen Donna and Amy even, I find that for some reason, despite the fact that both of them are good actors, and despite the fact that they get given good lines and good reasons to get attached, I just don't see, I, I can't really accept the level of commitment that Matt Smith seems to have and the affection that he seems to have for her based on their interactions, and it, I don't know what's missing. Yeah, because it's all about the, she's been, whatever it is, splintered through time, but the whole reason the Doctor seems to be attached to her is because he wants to know who she is, isn't it? Yeah, and curiosity, um, you know, curiosity is a good, is a good motivation for initial attraction and interest in somebody. But unless it's backed up with something, you see the thing. It is, doesn't sustain. Yeah, I mean, the Doctor is curious about the crimson, the crimson horror goes, yeah, and he's, he's curious about a lot of things, but his particular interest in this, just because he thinks she's impossible, either makes her out to be a science project, which we know that she's not, or someone he's more affectionate towards or cares about, but he never lets that happen either because he always seems to bring it back to who are you. So maybe yeah. maybe that's why, maybe there's just this dichotomy of, of her as the puzzle he's trying to solve and then her as somebody he likes spending time with. And as I said, there's nothing that, there's nothing that anyone's doing particularly wrong but it doesn't have that sense of rightness. And I guess you look back at Amy, you look at there's fish fingers and custard and there's things like that. Mm. And in the rings of, of Akerton, they gave that background with the Doctor sort of seeing how, his, how her parents met. And you had this really yeah. rapid and quite beautiful sort of backstory that was thrown in your face. And still I didn't get, I still haven't had that sense yet. Maybe I can't, I, 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 I'm... I should go on the forums. I'm not sure what other people are thinking about it at the moment. Well, yeah, I think I think you've pretty much nailed it, actually. I think a lot of people are having a bit of trouble with Clara just because they're not getting that connection, like you said. I'm hoping that after the name of the Doctor, once the sort of the impossible girl thing is all out of the way, that if she stays on and I suspect it might be a case of her staying on and him going, but if she stays on, maybe we'll have a more relaxed vibe with that character and she'll be able to impress us more with being a person rather than being another Stephen Moffat construct, if you want to call it that. Do you really think you're going to answer it next week? I do. Wow, I'd be astonished. Well, people will know. People will know by the time this podcast goes out. But um, yes, they're going to answer it next week. Oh, okay. Because I've got. I'm clueless. <laughs> I don't know. I can't work out any kind of connection. I can't see anything. You see. Well, I'm hmm. hoping it's something. Because uh, with this, I think people kind of tend to look at Stephen Moffat's plots and stories and kind of what people do is to kind of t t tend to try and bring their own expectations to what somebody else is writing whereas what you've got to really do is look at Stephen Moffat as a writer and your expectations of what he might do should be based upon the kind of things that he already does 
And I think what he's doing with Clara, and there's been quite a few mentions throughout the series of the fact that she's just an ordinary girl. So whatever the explanation is for the other two Claras, I don't think it's going to be something that comes from within her, but something that's explained by something that's happened to her externally. Like, for example, and I don't know, I don't know what happens in the name of the Doctor, So, but the great intelligence maybe. Maybe he takes Clara and, you know, sort of replicates her and splinters her off into time so that Clara herself is still still actually just a real, ordinary, normal girl and the ones that we've seen in the Christmas special and Asylum of the Daleks are like copies. I mean, something external like that. <coughs> I'm just thinking as you're talking to me about this because I remember you saying... In one of your podcasts, you were talking about the fact that in Doctor Who magazine, uh, Stephen Moffat had said that they were doing one la one extra scene. They had to do one extra pickup for each episode, and he would say that different. Oh yeah, of course, yeah. And I don't see where that's happening. And I remember with that season, with the season with the um, the first season that Moffat did. I remember when the scene with the jacket in the Angel story. That's exactly it. Like when I saw that. I th I saw that and I thought this is not a this isn't the same doctor, like it wasn't a continuity. Like I knew, and then I yeah. started, and I thought that it was brilliant. I mean, I thought it was it was, it was very tailish, but it was just. I but of course, the thing with that, yeah, the thing with that scene is they would have to have filmed that at the same time as the Angel story because the location and everything. So that what, but it's not like they went back afterwards to film no. that. No. And Stephen Moffat in that article, he was talking about going back to film things like pickups. So there can only have been scenes that were in the TARDIS, presumably. Yeah, I don't. So I don't know. I think maybe he was just having a bit of a joke with himself as he wrote the article. I just don't think he would set himself up for that if there wasn't something even bigger. I just look. I give him a lot of credit, but he hasn't let me. He hasn't let me down. Sometimes he misses the mark, but I mean. <clears throat> Look, at its worst, at its worst, since he's taken over, it is still so strong, and it's yeah, you know, it's an amazing show. So you know, we can nitpick and say that I would prefer X, Y, or Z, but I think that he's doing an amazing job. And I'm just trying to work out if he's who he is, there must be clues, because he loves clues. He does. He he doesn't want to. He does you know, love clues, yeah. Because he he likes it. Because with all due respect, he likes showing how clever he is. You know, and yes, it's, you know, it's sort of like see what I did to you there. So, I think you. I think that you made a very good point there because that hadn't occurred to me. Because we're trying, you know, it's like he's like a bullfighter in a way, and he shows you that red rag. And so, you, when you see that red rag, you charge. And so, we're so used to the idea of Amy being critical to what was happening in that universe and to the crack in the wall that we're expecting Clara to be critical. So, if she's not, and if she's just a victim, then that would make. Yes. Then that would make the relationship between two of them that much sweeter <coughs> once that's revealed and that'd be a nice thing mm. that might that might cement that connection and then you'd feel it when you went back and watched the episodes earlier anyway but yeah yes maybe maybe so but it's yeah i guess well so we're going to find out next week but uh, i'm dying to see it because i've got no idea I th and one other thing i'd like to see for a change changing the subject slightly but still on the subject of clara I'd like the only time in the new series we've seen the Doctor change and the companions stay is when Eccleston changed into Tennant with Rose. Mm. All the other times it's been the companion who's changed 
and the Doctor stayed the same, or they've both changed at the same time. But Doctor Who now is more based around the emotional journey of the companion, in a way. You know, this is what Stephen Moffat said, and this is what Russell T. Davis did. When you had that series with Martha, that series was Martha's story. And that series with Donna was Donna's story. Uh, but the one thing they're missing out is, if you change the Doctor but keep the companion the same, that's the biggest story you can tell for a companion, isn't it? And we've not really had that. So I'm hoping that, I, much as I don't want to see Matt Smith go, because much as I like the actor, like the character he's playing with the Doctor, in a way I'd like to see Matt Smith go, just so that we can see how Clara reacts to a change of Doctor, and how the companion is, the character is, with a different Doctor. But they did, they did do that with Rose, didn't they? they yeah, didn't... Rose is the only time, yeah, Sa- the only time it's happened. And Sarah Jane, didn't they do that with Sarah Jane, with John Pertwee and Tom Baker? No? Oh, I mean in the new series, sure, since sure, Russell sorry. T. Davis. Look, I think, yeah. look, I think it's a really good way to tell a story. I, um, we were all really, f- I think a lot of us were very fond of, we were fonder of Rose during that transition than I think we are of Clara, so it'd be, it, I think, it'd be hard to carry out. But I also think Matt Smith does need to go, and I don't want him to go. And mm. having watched the show since I was 12, he is my favourite Doctor, and it's just, it's a weird feeling that he is my favourite. And I'd be very sorry to see him He is amazing. Um, but I think... It just feels the time is right, perhaps. If he stays, it's going to be like a dying lull. It'll be like, he should, yeah. like he'd be at the party an hour too long, and you'd be thinking, look, you've been great company, but maybe, you know. Yeah. What better time is there to go than in the anniversary year, perhaps with the anniversary special? That kind of, it's like, uh, anything he does afterwards is going to seem like an anti-climax after that, isn't it? I think so. I mean, it, it's not necessarily so, but it would be a very, it's also, I think, career-wise, it would be a very good time for him to be moving on as well. I mean, you have to think about the individual as a, what he must, he's been around for, he's been, it feels short, this is his fourth year now, or third year? Yeah, four years, yeah, four years. He's not going to stay. <laughs> I'd love him to stay. No. This is the same amount of time as Tennant did. Yeah. And, well, Tennant's fourth year was a year too many, really, wasn't it? It did He should have like gone that. before the specials. Yeah, it did feel like that. Um, I think I don't want to go, and I don't know, I haven't, I've been strongly avoiding the rumours, so I don't know what's going to happen. But... The other thing is that if he does go, I guess the question is how would he go? Because a lot of people have talked about, I say a lot of people, it's mainly you guys I listen to about this, but about <laughs> how um, with the next Doctor, what a great opportunity that would have been for, yeah. for regeneration. And he actually says, he actually says in the Cyberman episode that he could regenerate now and let's see what happens. So Yeah, he does. Yeah. And there's another quote in that episode, and before we started talking, before we started recording, you brought it up, is there's a line about um, when the Doctor says, uh, or, or they talk about they would be able to reconstruct the Doctor from the space he leaves behind. This is something, yeah, we actually spoke about, we've spoken about this earlier. I think that was really... Um, yeah. It's clever writing. There's a, it's, there's a sense there, yeah. Go on. It may tie into this theory that you'd mentioned on previous podcasts about the fact that this Doctor is not going to be part of the... He's going to be part of our canon, but he's not going to be part of the history of that universe. He's going to be completely excised, deliberately. Yeah, 
Um, because as, as Stephen Moffat might take him out of time altogether. And you know, I well, I've been think I've been thinking a little bit about this before we started recording, only because you know we are coming up to the final episode of the series now, and I'm just wondering one or two things, and I just wonder. You, you know, John Hurt's been cast in the anniversary special. I had no idea. I know nothing. That's oh, amazing. really? No, I didn't know that. Oh, sorry, I've spoiled no, it's it great. for you. Then I, can, John... I, can, I don't know who he's playing. Do you know who he's playing, or we don't know? Well, know something about what he's playing, but right. I mean, do you want me to say? Uh, do they want it? Do people know? I mean, look, it's your. Uh, yeah, it's it. out in public. Oh, tell now. Me. it's pretty I much out in public. Let's hear it. Uh, well, apparently, he plays quote a part of the Doctor, oh, unquote. God. Well, it's very Stephen Moffat, isn't it? And prior to this having been said, I was already thinking along these lines. I wonder if. I wonder if, and this is pure speculation, I know no spoilers, I wonder if maybe the Great Intelligence tries to take Matt Smith's Doctor entirely out of time, like I said, and in doing so, Matt Smith's Doctor doesn't quite get excised from time altogether, but regenerates into John Hurd as the follow-up Doctor. But because Matt Smith was being taken out of time as it happened, that next regeneration doesn't take, it doesn't stick, it doesn't happen properly. So John Hurt, as this 12th Doctor, who's kind of not quite finished, not quite ready, has to find Matt Smith, the 11th Doctor, in order to ensure that he doesn't disappear from time altogether, so that this 12th Doctor can stick. And in doing so, he also finds maybe David Tennant's Doctor so he can help. So the anniversary special would be David Tennant and Matt Smith trying to make sure that John Hurt's Doctor doesn't disappear because that would, you know, end up with the Doctor being killed. And maybe at the end of the anniversary special, the three Doctors have managed to save this 12th Doctor, but because the regeneration wasn't working... And obviously John Hurt's the kind of an actor you couldn't cast to be in Doctor Who across a number of series because he's just too old. So maybe at the end of the anniversary special, John Hurt's Doctor regenerates into the proper 12th Doctor. So you've had John Hurt as maybe a sort of temporary 12th Doctor just for the one episode. And you've got Matt Smith in it. So the regeneration at the end of The Name of the Doctor could be a surprise because he's already been filming on this next episode as a past Doctor come back and people wouldn't be expecting that so I've been thinking all these things I've no idea whether any of this might you know be what? anywhere near the truth but if I was Stephen Moffat that's what I would write Do you know why I like this? Um, this on. is something we haven't spoken about but you know how um, <clears throat> each episode seems to um, pay homage to a Doctor in sequential order Yeah So um, Yeah And in is it Rings of Akaton Akaton where he talks yeah. about his granddaughter Akaton yeah Yes. And I thought, you know what I thought was amazing about that, just quickly, what I thought was amazing is that we all know that he has a granddaughter. We all know about it, right? He yes. never mentions it. And then he mentions it, and it's like, you're in shock. But it's, it's, it's not a secret, and it's not a revelation, but to have him actually say it out loud was such an amazing yeah. thing. And so, if the Ice Warriors is the second Doctor, and, um, the, and then the third, and then Metabolus, Metabolus three, the, um, 
And of course, Hyde, in a way, was also a remake of Day of the Daleks. And I've said this on the podcast that you've not heard yet, but it's a ghost story where the ghost turns out to be a traveller from the future, which is what Day of the Daleks was. And Journey of the Center of the Tardis was Invasion of Time. Mm -hmm. And And also mentions State of Decay in the dialogue. And Crimson Horror does the whole Tegan at the airport thing. And also, Crimson Horror has certain plot elements from the visitation. Right. Uh, we talked about this in a past episode, but anyway, yeah, there's a, there's an element of the visitation in there too. So I've got two questions. Well, I've got one question and one idea. What Go is on. I, the question. Now, the Sixth Doctor, I, unfortunately, I kind of gave it a big miss. So I don't know what were the references to Nightmare and Silver with the Sixth Doctor. Was it, um, was I'll tell you what, we couldn't work it out either. I was wondering if it was a slap, her slapping him in the face. I was thinking about when he was acting crazy and this is a real stretch, but I think Nicola Bryant had this, they had this antagonistic relationship. And the doctor was, yeah. the doctor was a bit, the doctor was a bit like crazy when he was first, when the regeneration was first taking place. I don't know. But the reason I ask is that if you're saying this thing about a doctor appearing for only one episode, surely that would be the ultimate homage for the eighth doctor. So if, <laughs> yes, so, I guess it would in a way. So if next week, so if this week was, next week would be the seventh, and then the anniversary special would be the eighth. Yeah, and it would be the. I mean, if you were going to take it that far, <coughs> sorry, big pardon. Having an, having an anniversary where, as you say, you have the tenth and eleventh Doctors almost as guest stars, and then having the John Hurt playing the Doctor for one episode and then leaving, it might be. I mean, it's a big effort to go to for a homage, but it could. But be. there again. You're absolutely right. If that is what happens, that is what happened with the Eighth Doctor. Well, sounds perfectly plausible to me. Well, it's interesting. I mean, it was it was just hearing you say it. I wonder. I wonder if that's because, yeah. And then it brings us back to the Ninth, which he doesn't need. Yeah, it it would it would complete the circle if that's what he was trying to do. Um, you know, another thought that's just occurred to me, <clears throat> and potentially I'm about to spoil something slightly for you again. There's a tra- there's a trailer for The Name of the Doctor. People listening to this podcast are going to have seen the episode. There's a trailer for The uh, Name of the Doctor in which you see Clara dressed in sort of 70s type clothes and you see Bessie driving past her. Really? Do you remember, in The Big Bang, the Doctor had to go back through his own timeline, didn't he? That's right. And that seems to be a thing with Stephen Moffat, and a lot of Stephen Moffat's stories have been about memory. And of course, Silence Will Fall strikes me as Silence Will Fall on the Doctor by taking him out of the universe. And then you've got this thing, this line in Nightmare in Silver, where he says we could reconstruct you from the gap that you've left. I wonder, if they do take the Eleventh Doctor out of time, maybe Clara gets sent back right through the entire Doctor's history to try and reconstruct him. And you could have sequences with Clara turning up in past Doctor's stories via special effects. Maybe that's something that'll happen next week or in the anniversary. Okay, so what you're saying, and this is where... We said that we'd save this Maybe to the c- end, but the reason that she's split throughout time is because of the Doctor, in order to save himself. Yeah. Yeah, maybe so. so maybe that's what's happened. <coughs> he splinters <coughs> her through time to go and look for him, to save him. Seems selfish enough. <laughs> <laughs> but it also seems quite plausible. 
uh, is not something that Stephen Moffat hasn't done before, and he does tend to repeat some of his some of his tropes in, in different guises. Uh, it's not something he's not done before, so no. it seems to me quite plausible that he wouldn't necessarily avoid doing that again. If, if you, this is interesting because you talk like Janine and Moffat said, which I can't do. But talking to you, I'm getting a sense of the fact that if you were going to ask yourself the question, who is capable of taking a person and putting them all the way through time? It's going to be the doctor. Yeah. And if he, and I guess if the motivation wasn't just for himself, but also to destroy the great intelligence, because it can't, as you know, I mean, it's not that he's a, he's not a, that he's a selfish guy, but you know, with Amy, he 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 planted the things in her mind to bring him back, but nobody got hurt. So to do this to Clara, where she effectively dies twice, I mean... And presumably more times as well, but yeah. I guess if he's... Well, so maybe the, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. I think something will have to be at stake, something really big. But, um, yeah, no, now you've really got me... I've been trying not to think about this, and now it's really interesting. <laughs> we haven't talked about the episodes. Yeah. I'm feeling really bad now. We haven't discussed many No, that's okay. Well, I tell, we're, let's, um, I tell you what, let's go... <clears throat> yeah, just a sort of a quick thumbs up or thumbs down or a handful of thoughts on each one. So, uh, what did you think of the Rings of Akaten? I thought it was beautiful, and I thought it was really wonderfully realised, and I thought it was the first 15 minutes I thought we were in for a wild ride. And then <clears throat> it felt like nothing really happened, and it was um, it turned into a big conversation between the Doctor and a alien planet with a smiley face or a growly face. So it, yeah. it was like it was visually amazing, and there were portions of dialogue that I, that I would write down and put in a diary that was so beautiful about we don't walk away and we run to save and all those things. But it, there didn't feel like enough story, so it was a bit disappointing. Yeah, um, visually beautiful, but just I don't know. It left me. It, it had a disappoint. I liked it, but it had a disappointing ending. The last sort of ten minutes kind of undid the work a bit. Yeah, I mean, I thought it seemed. It didn't seem a strong follow-up to Bells of St John, and uh, I was a bit. And yeah, I was a bit. I was left a bit cold, and then having been left a bit cold, then uh, I'm not going to make a dire pun. Sorry, but the whole the whole Cold War thing that followed. Um, with, oh yeah. With the Ice Warriors, I. So, what did you think of Cold War then? Yeah. Um, well, I'd mentioned to you that the first time I ever watched Doctor Who was the Peladon um, episode of the Ice Warriors, so I... Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, so I've always had a thing for them. And one thing I didn't tell you when I spoke about writing is that the first thing I wrote was when I was about 12, and it was called Doctor Who and the Triple Invasion, and it had um, Daleks and Cybermen and Ice Warriors, so... I've always been a massive fan of the Ice Warriors, and I was really keen for their comeback, and I was really excited when I saw the trailer. And then, when I saw the episode and saw one Ice Warrior, and when I saw that for half the episode the Ice Warrior wasn't in the armour, which is such an iconic image for me, I just... I was really disappointed. It just didn't seem to work for me, and... It seemed like it tried to, to capture a lot of elements of the classic show, but the ones that it was picking up on were the stuff I didn't want to see. I didn't want to see the TARDIS supposedly being in Vegas and ending up on a submarine. And I didn't want to see it vanishing at the first sign of danger when it's the most powerful ship in the universe. And I didn't want to see a creature skittering, skittering around partially out of view for half the episode. So, it, Yeah, I know. It's to go to all this trouble to bring back the Ice Warriors. 
Ice Warriors. Yeah. And then it's just an Ice Warrior. And you only even get to see the Ice Warrior for about five minutes of the episode, to be honest. Yeah, and I think, you know, we talked about this thing with the Cybermen and the fact that we were expecting some kind of changes because it was a new writer, and I think that we're being trained with the new series to, to be told, you know, this isn't your dad's Ice Warrior, this isn't your dad's Dalek, but we like these creatures for a reason. And even in a classic yeah. show where things fell, fell straight, they, they struck a chord and they resonated over the years. So in a way, the the desire to to bring something new to the to these new to these iconic characters does not always work, and um, no. I would love to see someone bring back like a draconian or a zygon or something and just have it like we like we remember, but just maybe make them look cooler. But you know, I mean, because the classic show was but not mess around with yeah. the concept so much because the classic show wasn't let down. Well, it wasn't let down by anything other than budget, really. The ambition was always there. And so, okay, just give them an eye, you know, just do the set properly and do the costume properly, maybe a bit of bling, but <coughs> the heart of the story. And to have the Ice Warriors, and even have the Doctor make that throwaway comment that they don't cope well with heat or something, you know, and then he says, oh, yeah. design flaw. It's a hell of a design flaw. And it just seems strange that there was this dishonor of being out of your armor, but obviously they were much more functional out of their armor. So yeah. So what was the point of them having the armor? It, uh, I don't know. It didn't make sense, really. Yeah. Did it? I mean, I think I really look. I like the way Mark Gaddis is. I like that he's such a fan of the show, but I, I can't help thinking that it hampers him as a writer because I love his stuff on Sherlock and I love his stuff on League of Gentlemen, and it just seems that maybe the fanboy gets gets in the way of a good yeah, story sometimes. I, I don't know. And I, look and. My hat's off to him and, and what he's trying to do, but I was—I walked away from that very disappointed and very worried about where the season was going. Actually, okay, so let's jump ahead to the other Mark Gatiss episode then, um, the Crimson Aura. Okay. Aura. Okay, my confession. What did you make of that? Here's my confession: I fell asleep. I fell asleep during the episode, which I've not done with one episode of the new season of the, since the show's come back. But I, I, I um. I hadn't slept for two days because of work, and that's my excuse. So I rewatched it, and if I take away the idea that it was Gattis, yeah, which is what I have to yeah. do, I guess, which is what I have to do. I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was a pretty good story. I thought I liked the way you had the impression that it was that you were watching the second part of a two-parter. I thought that was very. It was a nice way to immerse you in the story. It was a nice. Way of, yeah. it was a nice approach to telling the story and using that kind of old fashioned footage to give you that flashback sense was, was very strong. And in fact, it made me feel. It brought you up to, it brought you up to speed on a whole episode's worth of material yeah. without you having to sit through a whole episode to get there. And I found myself feeling very compassionate for the guy who died in the opening scene. Having not seen him in any kind of flashback, I genuinely, I genuinely found myself caring because he, he struck me as a companion. I gotta say, this is the companion of the Doctor in that episode. He'd been there. It's, when you think about it, it's a strange thing because you know the Doctor encounters a character. There's a bunch of characters he'll encounter, and you know that there's going to be a body count. So, for example, in the first Cyberman story, that woman who died, Mrs. Any, Mrs. Something rather, I don't remember what he called her. Um, she was the older lady in that terrorist cell, yes. and so. You know, and you, you felt for her, and she died, and he and he sort of, I will avenge you, and that that kind of thing. And to have a character dead for the whole episode, so to speak, and then seeing him in flashback as sort of helping the Doctor and Clara, I actually found myself like I thought it was very economical and very strong. 
when I think about it, I, I quite like that, um, and I love Diana Rigg. So I think there's a lot of good stuff in that episode. Yeah. That episode grows on me more and more the more I see it, the more I think about it. I feel the same way. I think it's the best thing that Gaddis has done, and I think obviously he's quite comfortable in that era. And um, yeah, I like seeing I like seeing um, that crew from the Victorian era. I, I like seeing Jenny, and 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 I love seeing Strax. And uh, I keep waiting for some kind of spin-off series a la Torchwood of the three of them um, <clears throat> pottering around Victorian England. And uh, if only the BBC had the money to make it. At the moment, BBC's budgets are stretched. I think it's a shame. I would like to see that myself, but I can't see it happening at the moment. If, but you never know. If they did a one-shot, just to see... I mean, they could just do a one-shot. Yeah. And see what, I mean, it would be... It'd be interesting, and I hope they address address the reason Strax came back. I'd like, um, I'd like to know. Oh, there's a that might be on the box set. There's a sort of two minute um, internet thing explaining how Strax came back. Oh, I didn't know that. I just thought. Yeah, there. All right. <laughs> I was for you should history. go and look for it. It's around somewhere. I should. I should. So look, I enjoy that. I'm a bit. He seems a bit softer in the head, a bit softer in the head than I would like. I like where the humour comes from his cultural thing, so he called Jenny a boy. I don't know about him always positing using weapons that probably don't exist, you know, like <laughs> well, spine grenades. A bit of fun, really, isn't it? But he, but he's such a pleasure to watch. So yeah, yeah, I did enjoy. Oh, I love him. I think he's wonderful. Yeah, I thought it was very. I thought it was quite strong, and it felt like a return to form. So I, I enjoyed that. Um, In fact, that was the third of, uh, insofar as I'm concerned, that was the third of three good episodes yeah, in a row. Yeah. The first of which was Hyde. What did you think of Hyde? I thought Hyde was very strong. I really liked I liked the fact that it was genuinely scary when it wanted to be and genuinely sweet when it wanted to be. And it, and it, was, um, it had more science than I expect from Doctor Who these days in terms of the explanation for what was going on and mm. a different way of using time travel as a story. And it, yeah, it had a real, it had a real sweetness to it. I, I found it harder to accept the fact that the whole premise for him going back there was to speak to the medium about who Clara was, and this sort of ties back to this thing about the fact that I'm not getting their relationship really well. But um, I think it's an episode I'm going to go back to again and again. And um, yeah, yeah, I thought it was quite beautiful, telling the truth. And well, that's one in which the characters are really well drawn and the acting in that is superlative. Absolutely. I mean, there was, no, there was nothing wrong with it and it was... Um, my, it took a week for my kids to go back to their bedroom after watching that episode, even though I said, look, it's not a ghost story, it's a love story. That bit didn't sink in. <laughs> so, yeah, it was good. And after And that, then... Go on, sorry. Your journey. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I'd been What did you out. think? I'd been hanging out for this episode. I I think like everybody else, you know, there'd been so many references to swimming pools and desktops changing and you know I was dying yeah. I was dying to see the inside of it and I thought I really liked it but I don't know what it, it I don't know what it would have needed to do to live up to the promise of what it could have done. So I thought it was amazing. And it, mm. and when it was exploding, it made me think about the whole silence will fall when the TARDIS explodes. And I was wondering if that was going to be what we were seeing. But we didn't see that because they reset the whole story. Yeah. 
It's one of these things. Well, there were two, two, there were two things about that. Um, one is the re, a, a lot, two things. One, a lot of fans found that episode a letdown because I don't suppose it could ever live up to their expectations of what an episode set entirely inside the TARDIS should be. Yeah. But for me, there was enough in there, the library, the swimming pool, and the Eye of Orion and everything that was fan service. But at the same time, instead of giving itself over to that completely, it just told a strong story that just happened to be set inside the TARDIS. And I think if you take away your expectations from it, I think actually it was a really strong episode. And in some ways, it reminded me of Dinosaurs on a Spaceship. It's all set inside a craft. There's a strong plot. And it's, apart from the reset at the end, it tells quite a straightforward story that's easy to follow and has lots of good moments, both for character and for action-adventure along the way. I just thought it was a really strong story. And I think you're right. I think it was a no-win scenario for the fans. Yeah. Because I don't know what would make everybody happy. And when I think about it, I'm pretty amazed that Stephen Moffat gave that to somebody else to write. But I guess yeah. he must have known <laughs> it was it was a um, poison chalice in a way. Because it was... Maybe so, yeah. Yeah, because no, I agree with you. And for example, you're watching it, and when you see, like when you see an alien on board the ship, and it's the TARDIS, you know there can't be this creature on the ship that's a bad... You know, it, I mean, the... The explanations for, for the baddies, so to speak, were good. And the, mm-hmm. and the fact that there was no arch nemesis, but it was just characters dealing with their own flaws and yeah, interacting, yeah. was, um, it was a really nice way of telling a story where trouble was arising from cultural problems and misunderstandings and lies rather than somebody twisting their moustache and saying, it's time for me to take over. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes, it was strong. Some, some, Sometimes it's better to watch the episodes without any expectation whatsoever, but I guess, as Doctor Who fans, that's impossible, isn't it? Not with a title like Julius Descent of the TARDIS, I think, yeah. But it was, I really, no. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. So, and of course, the other thing, uh, the, about the reset, because this is, um, you know, reset is something that fans often bring up and say, oh, it's a story with a reset. And they say, well, any story with a reset is a story without a consequence and it might as well not have happened. But, you know, the way I look at it is any story has a kind of a reset in that before the story, you don't have the villain and after the story, you've got rid of the villain. So the post-story, you have returned to the same status quo as existed before the villain arrived. And in a way, that's a kind of reset for itself. But the focus of the story should be that there's a villain there, how the Doctor reacts to that villain, and um, the fact that the Doctor needs to do something to get rid of the villain. And if the reset is the way the Doctor gets rid of the villain, to me, that's still a fundamental part of the story, and the story doesn't not have a consequence just because that's how it was resolved. The story itself is still just as important as any other story, even if it's a reset at the end that takes you back to the status quo from before. Yeah. Because you're always looking to go back to that status quo, aren't you? I have to agree with you because I think people confuse the reset story with the whole, I woke up and it was just a dream. And it's not the same thing. Yeah. It's not the same thing. No, not at all. And in fact, in a way, you know the whole, um, I don't want to sort of 
go off too far off track, but you know the whole Joseph Campbell idea right. of um, the hero with a thousand faces? Are you familiar with that? Uh, vaguely, perhaps. Remind me. I'll be really quick about this. But basically, there are roughly, uh, people out there can correct me, but there's 12 or 15 steps in just about every story that's ever told. Mm. And the more you deviate away from those steps, the less satisfying a story is. But the key... The key thing to a good story is that you start off with characters in our in, in the normal world, and then something takes yes. them to the extraordinary world. And in, yes. and in that extra, extraordinary world, they will encounter people who will help them, people who will harm them, and people who appear to help but harm and vice versa. And when they come yeah. back, they have to return to the ordinary world in some way changed. So yes, even if Clara doesn't remember what happened, the fact that the Doctor got to see Clara's wit and strength, and the Doctor got to learn more about what was happening. It definitely satisfied, it ticked all the boxes of what you need, and so the reset button was almost, it's almost like an ironical yeah. statement about itself, saying, mm. we're actually going to reset the story by resetting the story. And that's, yeah. and it, which is kind of clever and cute, more than anything else. And so I had no problem and with that. And of course, the fact that they've got big friendly button written on a big friendly yeah. button is an ironic comment upon the fact of what they're doing anyway. I loved it. I thought it was fine. It was and nice. it was entirely logical, entirely logical that that's how the story should conclude as well. I just had a thought, by the way. You know how we were talking about how each one ties into a certain Doctor and the fourth Doctor? Yeah. The it also had a real Douglas Adams feel to it, the whole idea of a big friendly button when you think about it. It's a very... I guess it did, yeah. It's a very Hitchhiker's kind of thing. all these stories have had... Uh, big references and big homages, as well as lots of little references as well, to all sorts of things. If you go back through the entire second half of this series and pick all those stories apart, there are so many little things. uh, It was said by some people that the reason this second half of Series 7 is in 2013 is only because they hadn't written anything else for 2013, but these episodes were definitely written to be the anniversary stories, yeah. weren't they? Look, I think, I know I'm a big fanboy, but I think that Doctor Who fans should be really grateful at the effort these guys have gone to. Just, I mean, you know, early on when you have really nice touches like the Doctor uh, in Venice showing his library card with the first Doctor, there's always these beautiful little references. Yeah. But this season, you know, I feel I'm slightly critical in a way of how 7B has gone compared to 7A, but I can't fault them for doing their best to sort of um, display the richness of 50 years of television. As yes, a, absolutely. And maybe, and, and when you think about the fact that they're trying to satisfy a general audience, knowing that only a small proportion are, are diehard fans who will watch and rewatch, it's a very, I think it's a very phil- it's philanthropic thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, um, and it's one. I think they've uh, these stories perhaps haven't set the world alight quite in the way that the five stories last year did, but they've done a damn good job uh, with this tricky balancing act. And it just maybe f- and on the whole, it's yeah. Sorry, go on. on. No, I, I should let you go on. Well, I was just going to say, on the whole, I think it's been very successful. Just as you were saying that, I was thinking back to a podcast that of yours that I've just heard. You guys were talking about the tenth anniversary year. And I just, mm. and I, get, I do get a sense that this is an anniversary year. They're not just, they have the special coming up and that's all well and good, but these episodes are also, they, they will also have this sense of anniversary about them, which is, a, you know, 
it's a generous thing to do, to, to, to take a story as good as, let's say, Hyde, or as good as, let's say, Junior the Center of the TARDIS, and then put enough little touches in there so you can watch it and reference other things. I, I mean, it's pretty amazing. Yes. Okay. I completely agree. All right, I'll stop going. Look, do you want to... Do you want to do what we usually do on the Blue Box podcast and give scores for the episodes? I would feel I would feel privileged, though. I've got to say, I haven't. <laughs> I, I, now, I didn't get to hear you, your guys' assessment, and I should warn. I should just say I'm a bit of a harsh critic because I sort of I have my benchmark episodes that I hold um, other episodes up against, but I'll give it a shot. Okay, let's right. Let's go through in order then, and we'll just give them a score, and I'll let you know what I scored them as well. So, first of all, Bells of St. John, what would you score that okay. out of ten? Whole numbers only. Yeah, no, no decimals, no fractions. <laughs> um, I'm going to say... God, I'm going to say... Look, really, I'm going to say a nine. I'm going to say a nine. Okay. And I, would have I think I gave thought, that one an eight. Yeah, I would have thought an eight, and I think I would have thought an eight if you'd asked me this yesterday. But I think, when I think about what it had to do, rest, you know, restarting the second half of the season in the mm. beginning of the anniversary year and getting us all excited about it and bringing back the great intelligence um, and for fun factor. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say nine. Okay. Uh, what about the Rings of Akaten then? Um, okay, I, I, I would have to bring that, I would have to rein that back a bit and say, gee, I'd have to say, um, Maybe I'm gonna give it a <laughs> no because I want to say a six or a seven. The problem is that if I look at it, I'm gonna say a seven. I thought visually it was amazing. It 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 made me think about the first Doctor and a web planet, and I love the aliens. It's and I loved the cultural mix, but and I love that first baddie in the glass case, the the grandfather. But um, at the end of it left it left me a bit cold. So I'm gonna say about a seven for that. I give that one a seven too. Um, okay, Cold War. I'm going to have to say like a five. I have to say five. I have oh, to do it. Wow. Because I have to say it's the most disappointing episode I've seen in a long time. And, yeah. and I think that that disappointment's not fair and other people wouldn't, just wouldn't agree with me. But unfortunately, you're bringing back these guys. It's the first time well, this score has uh, this score has to be personal. It has to be your score, yeah. so you can't score it the way you think other people yeah, should. Yeah, unfortunately, I give it a seven just for the entertainment value, but it was a very generous seven. Yeah, I I, I was more dismayed than entertained, and more horrified than pleased. So and uh, so, mm. I'm, yeah, I'll stick to that. So I know it's probably not a popular choice, and um. I think I would have given it less after the first watch, but I didn't score it till after the second watch. And, you know, yeah, when you watch it the second time, it's not quite as disappointing because you know how disappointing it's going to uh, be, don't you? And you just watch it for the story rather than for what you're thinking. Yeah. Watch it for what happens for rather what you expect, yeah. what you think should happen. Go on then, Hyde. What would you give Hyde? I think that I would give Hyde probably... I'd probably give it an eight. Yeah, that's what I gave it. Just in the context it's, of it. It's very good, but it's not quite... It's not spectacular. Mm. And Solid, but not spectacular. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, and spectacular is stuff like the you know the wedding of River Song and Blink and the Doctors. There's a, I mean, spectacular is spectacular. Yeah. So an eight is a very respectable thing. I mean, it was really strong. Yeah. Yeah, and I think Journey to the Center of the TARDIS again, if it wasn't... If I didn't know anything about the TARDIS and I was just watching that show, 
I might give it a nine or something. Yeah. For because it's a great story and a great use of time and a great idea of the bad guys being them and a lot of nice paradoxes mm. and stuff. But unfortunately, I know what the TARDIS is, so I have to give it an eight. <laughs> yeah. I'd have to give it an eight and just think it was very it was very ambitious and brave and, and, and respectable. And it probably could never do more than an eight, unfortunately. If that makes well, I actually gave that a nine, perhaps because I didn't really... I wasn't really that fussed about the TARDIS stuff. I just wanted it to be a good story, and mm. I enjoyed the story, and I mm. gave it a nine. But there you go. And the Crimson Horror, what did you what would you give the Crimson Horror? For a Mark Gatter story, I'm going to give it a ten. But for it compared to the, his work, but generally speaking, I'd probably say a seven for Crimson Horror, because um, I didn't think it was as strong as Journey or Hyde. Um, yeah. It was good. It was good. There wasn't really anything wrong with it, but just in the, if I'm trying to rate all the episodes, I would just say it yeah. wasn't on par with them. But it was good. Well, so you give it a seven, yeah. and I gave that an eight. And actually, I, you know, if I was to rate it again now, I might even go so far as a nine with that. I really enjoyed that. But there you go. Now, JR, this is right. the thing. When you rate these things, and I hear you rating it with the other guys, I hear how their numbers creep up <laughs> as they're talking to you. So I'm very mindful of the fact <laughs> that as I talk to you, I'm thinking, yeah, maybe he's right. But, um, yeah. But I can see. And then sometimes, good. and then sometimes they creep down as well, of course. Nightmare in Silver, this one's going to split us, because I only gave Nightmare in Silver a six. You see, the, the, yeah, I think so, because though I opened talking about the things I thought was wrong with it, I, I still think I have to give it like an eight or a nine. Um, and maybe if I thought if I saw it again or got back to it in a week, I might think otherwise. But I think, I can't tell you, I, I, I can't tell you why it, I still feel so strongly about it, because... Yeah, I'm going to say an eight. I'm going to say an eight, if that makes sense. Because okay. because the thing is, Gaiman's a good writer, and um, he was dealing with difficult material, and he was dealing with a lot of expectation. And hmm. I don't know that. Yeah, it, I, I yeah. think it's created more problems than solved them for writers dealing with Cybermen in the future. And it wasn't. It didn't strike me as the definitive Cyberman story, which is what I was hoping for. There was too much else going on, wasn't yeah. there? For it, it wasn't. It, you know, for a Cyberman story, it wasn't really about the Cybermen, was it? No, they seemed to be... Th- th- it was really the Doctor versus the Doctor, to tell you the truth, in a way. It was... Um, yeah. And the Cybermen were just there, like they were in closing time. Yeah. That's I, how it felt, anyway. That was the feeling I was left with. Well, I'm going to watch it again. I, look, I just think it wasn't... A, I was expecting something really good. Um, he had a lot of time to work on it, too. He'd been writing... We knew that he was doing this for a long time. And maybe you know expectations yeah. get a bit high. Um, ah, and it might be that that's an episode that I'll probably probably become harsher about as time goes by as I think about it more. But yeah, I'd have to say eight at the moment. But I know where you're coming from. Well, thank you for joining me, David. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for uh, for inviting me on. It's been great talking to you about this. Well, I think it's been a. I, I've really enjoyed this. It's been a really good. I think a really good chance to just kick back and have a fairly easygoing chat about mm. what's been going on so far. Absolutely. So I'm very happy. And so I and guess I hope people, I hope people enjoyed the episode. I hope so too. And I, get, I mean, by the time this airs, I mean, I, I, I'm very curious to find the answers to all these questions we've been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Well, not long to wait now. No, exciting times. Yeah. 
Right, um, I'll sign off then. Um, until next time, I was JR. And I was David. And we'll speak again soon. on Absolute Radio with Emily Dean and Alan Cocker and it turns out there's a book called uh, You and Who by J.R. Southall Starburst Magazine's resident Doctor Who expert which collects over 66 essays on Doctor Who Are you uh, still getting your Who updates? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I have an app called Who News So do um, I, but mine's about Roger Daltrey <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>